out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American band Romeo Void, because I recently spoke to their lead singer and also songwriter, Deborah Leal to find out more about life, love and poetry and her life in music, which started in the 60s, but mostly with the band from the late 70s onwards. And also, more, more importantly, they have got a new live album that's coming out at the end of April 2023, connected with Record Store Day. This is a live recording from Mebue Gardens, which was recorded on the 14th of November 1980 and it's going to be available from all good record shops as well as CD and digital downloads. 11 tracks, so do check that out. But we'll be talking about that very soon in this interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Deborah, it's over to you. Well, I would have to say, you know, I grew up with great radio. All our, my mom was a veterinarian, which was unusual to have a professional mom and being a veterinarian was very rare when she graduated. She was one of two women who graduated in a class of 102 um, with uh, her degree. And so we always had teenage babysitters. And right. they loved to listen to the radio and they'd have the radio on all the time. So we'd hear everything from Motown to Tim Harden to the San Francisco bands, you know, the um, all the pop music, Gene Pitney, just great radio. Yes. And then I started buying my own records and I think my first leanings were towards, you know, a little bit more the Otter side, like... Uh, Frank Zappa, Absolutely Free, yes, and Country Joe and the Fish. And uh, then later, once I was, you know, more grown, the first person who super inspired me to want to be in a band and turn my poetry into more than that was a Patti Smith. Right. So, it was, it was so awesome. by that time, um, when did she come out? About 77? Yeah, possibly even the 76, 75, actually. Yeah, I, yeah so I was, was, you know, I was in my early 20s by that time. So it wasn't a, you know, total yeah. youthful influence, mm. but definitely more vital than anyone else had ever been. And whereabouts did you grow up, by the way? Where, what part of America? I grew up in Fresno, California, which is the Central Valley. Yes. Um, Agriculture, you know, and we grew up riding horses and you know, running in the fig orchards with our horses. And, wow. you know, my mom had her veterinary practice and we lived at the hospital for a number of years. So we'd help take care of the animals, you know, give them water and food. And Yes. And were they... Get what, to know them. And, well, they absolutely. That's very professional because most people have, you know, a very kind of working class background. But obviously that's kind of quite a professional one. And what was your dad like? Was he, did he have a, an influence kind of on your life, either culturally, politically or musically? Well, my dad was Native American and he was um, mostly employed uh, as a coach or a, a PE teacher, you know, early in his years. 
My mom and my dad divorced, though, when I was two and a half years old. Right. And we moved away from the state. You know, he was, they were living in Washington state. That was where my mom was born. That's where he was born. And then we moved to California. Okay. So we were quite separated from uh, him and that side of our family for many years. And then um, my dad would come and visit us very occasionally, like maybe every four or five years. And after a while even further apart years than that right and he remarried and his wife was catholic and so to her we were kind of an embarrassment yes because we were the children of divorce mm-hmm. i remember hearing that phrase and going what, what? you know <laughs> okay oh, um tricky. yes did you have any but once she asked yeah, I've got um, two sisters and a brother. Right. Yes. Uh, were they older or younger than you? Um, I was the youngest of the first three with my dad as the father, and then my younger sister, six years younger than me, and she has a different father. Yes. God, that is quite tricky. Mm-hmm. And did you say you, you ha- you're you reconnected with your biological father when your stepmother passed away? Yeah, after his wife passed away, his second wife, because her, you know, shame and all that didn't permeate him. It was always, you know, directed from her. So I remember going up to visit him and um, then suddenly we got invited to that side of the family's family reunions. So then we started to meet our cousins. And so I was in my mid 20s when all that happened. Wow, that's quite a quite a complex cultural mix you've got there, isn't it? Really, we yeah. <laughs> Luckily, I mean, my mom was uh, encouraging us to know about our culture. I remember her buying me a really beautiful book on Native American art, and where we lived in Fresno, there was a a powwow every year up in the mountains um, near there. And so she would take us to the powwow just about every year so we could see other Indian people. Yes. And I remember what a revelation it was to see somebody who had, you know, sort of my physical characteristics, you know, and body types, you know, women with the broader shoulders and flat asses. That's a very (laughs) Native American trait you know, from my uh, part of the country and just, you know, being able to feel, you know, not out of place. Yes. Because I remember very much, you know, my mom being asked if we were adopted because we were all these three brown kids. Right. You know, with this, um, my mom was Norwegian, primarily Dutch, English, Irish. Wow. So she had light brown hair and blue eyes and very, you know, light skin and everything. And we just didn't look like her. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, you must have got some glances. That's good. Did you say you were the youngest of three with your? Yes. So I got to be the baby until my little sister came along. Yes, because I'm the youngest of three. You know, I've got two older brothers. But my, did they play any kind of uh, impact in your life because my oldest brother who was seven years older had a huge impact when I was growing up he he introduced me to that world of prog rock of you know all those he was he was that generation in the 70s who loved yes and genesis and wishbone ashbelt james harvest 
and the solo work of Rick Wakeman. I was so lucky, he says. He could have yes. something a little bit more interesting, but um, I was I was mesmerized by all those sounds. Did you did did they have did they have a sort of interest in music and culture? Well, my sister loved to date musicians. So we got to know some of the guys who were in local bands in Fresno. Nice. You know, and, and they'd bring their guitars over and things like that. And and um, she was just about two years older than me. So she really took on the mother figure in our family because my mom really did work a lot. Yes, I would imagine. And so we were responsible for cooking dinner. I mean, I remember being, you know, around eight or nine or so when, you know, it was part of my job to help get dinner on the table and the table set and all that sort of thing. My God, and then, um, and she was very maternal and, and, you know, to this day, she still is. She's my older sister. She's the one who knows me best and I can confide, you know, anything to her. And yes. uh, we remain quite close. Well, that's that's And, um. Yeah, she's she's a great gal. She was a teacher for many years, long before I was. So um, I remember when I became a teacher, I'm not really big on wearing, you know, tons of makeup or being that fashionable necessarily. And I remember when she when I started to teach, she said, well, don't forget every day you should at least put on lipstick because <laughs> kids like pretty teachers. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So she had a little worship wisdom on how to be a girl, you know. Yeah. I remember she also told me um I'd see her put vanilla behind her ears before she'd go out with her boyfriends. I was like, what are you doing? She goes, Boys like girls who smell like cookies. Wow, that's amazing. Well, that's probably quite true, actually. But um yes, yeah, she's never... very practical. <laughs> practical and quite cunning yes well that's yeah. good you've, you've got to have yeah. the moves so when you were because you were at that perfect age really to sort of start to get excited by the 60s counterculture you know that 67 oh you know, absolutely I was, saw Jimi Hendrix oh my god I saw so Janis cool. Joplin in a pretty small ballroom that held maybe 250 people maybe 300 right Fresno ballroom rainbow ballroom in downtown Fresno and it was mesmerizing. And it was, uh, I think she played two sets that night, but they hadn't sold that many tickets for the second set. And so after the first set, they just told us we could all stay. <laughs> and so I got to see two sets that night of her performing. That was when she was with Big Brother and the Holding Company. Right. Oh I remember standing, you know, about four feet in front of her and just in awe her power and her oh she was just really unabashed you know she had um a real sensuality you know to how she wore her clothes and just carried herself you know she's had a lot of swag she did take that texan quality hasn't she she was quite um yes she was incredible I always remember watching that Monterey Pop Festival and, um, yes, and just being kind of amazed with Janice. She was incredible. Yes. So that was And cool. yet she wasn't being like the pretty one, you know. She wasn't like Judy Collins or something, you know. No. Of course, I love Judy Collins. I had her records. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But that's, yeah. Um, yeah, she was she was quite. Or Joni tough. Mitchell. I love Joni Mitchell. I know. God, did we love And her. as a lyricist, I, I mean, to keep myself company, 
and just, you know, kind of early, you know, teen years, self-soothing activity. I got a book of her lyrics and it was just some bootleg thing somebody had put out and they sold it at the record store. You know, the lyrics of Joni Mitchell records, probably about the first three or four records. And I would just sit outside or wherever I was, usually outside. And I would just pick song after song and just sing to myself. Yes. Well, that's loving her lyrics and, you know, her point of view. And did that, didn't, yeah. Well, it was kind of, I suppose, Blue and Court and Spark, which were Mm -hmm. the the first two albums. Waiting for the Car on the Hill. Oh, yeah. God, that's such a great song, isn't it? And it uh, really is. Yeah. And I also love the humor, you know, you turn me on, I'm a radio. Yeah, I know. And also uh, there are some, I some, yeah, her lyrical content was amazing. The last time I met Richard, last time I met Richard. Yes. Yeah, there was, you'll find me waiting. In the All room. romantics meet the same fate someday. Yes. Lyrical and drunk. Cynical and drunk. Cynical. And it's interesting because she really romanticized Europe for me. I never really thought about Europe much until I heard Joni Mitchell records and then you know when she wrote about Paris and you know going to Greece and all that I was like wow I have to do that someday and yes I, I know I think was it the kissing of summer lawn she sort of references Paris and France and um about kissing on Main Street today god something like that I need it's funny with Joni Mitchell because she's very seasonal for me there's some albums I'll play in the winter and autumn some play I play in the the spring and then there's a real summer album I mean they're kind of you can you can predict which ones are which actually and also I loved some of her 80s ones and I played them a lot during that period so they bring back quite a lot of memories actually dog eat dog the one with Thomas Dolby production, which I think they had a few issues, but that's another story. So, um, yes, oh God, I love Joni so much. So when you, I mean, where did you see Hendrix, by the way? Because frankly, Hendrix was one of our other gods when we were growing up, wasn't he? I saw him at Santa Clara Fairgrounds. So there used to be, you know, this thing of, you know, they'd have little, little music festivals and, they had one in Fresno. I saw the doors at it, and it was at the fairgrounds. Oh so it was different than, you know, Woodstock. But, you know, a, a lot of bands would all play on the same day or night or even sometimes over two nights. And um, when I saw Jimi Hendrix, I had gone to this music festival on Friday, and there was a place that you could sleep, and bands would actually come and play at the field where everyone was sleeping. So during the night, I'd heard Jefferson Airplane, you know, and then the next day you got up and went over to the official venue, um, which, you know, cost money. You had to have a ticket to get in the field where you were sleeping was just free here. Here's where you're sleeping. And um, that's where Jimi Hendrix was. And I didn't have a reserved in those days. You could get a reserved seat or just I think they called it ballroom you know, where you just were on the floor and, you know, wherever you could, if you could find a seat, you had a seat. If not, you could just wander around. And so I had that. And I remember being able to find a seat pretty up close and watching him. And I remember how connected he was with himself and like the universe and maybe the band a little bit, but he wasn't, even though, I mean, he was something to look at, he wasn't as much of a showman 
in my mind as he was having this experience that we were sharing. Right. So I remember just being really fascinated by that. And of course, you know, he looked amazing and he wore interesting clothes and just, you know, the way he played. And I'm sure that he played his guitar with his teeth when I saw him, Right. you know, and that was like for someone, I think I was maybe about 14 when I saw him. Wow, so. it was it was sexy, you know. Was, and, I would imagine so. And then, yeah, how did, how did that compare to the Doors then, and seeing Jim Morrison? Well, Jim Morrison was much more putting on the show, yeah, you know, and very conscious, um, self conscious, you know, but kind of in a way that you know had a lot of uh, power to it. It was in an era where he was, you know, in the leather pants and the kind of billowy white shirt open to the waist you know definitely a, a Dionysus or <laughs> am I saying it right um kind of figure at yes. that point so early in their career and I re- actually remember not being that fascinated by him because um I remember watching the keyboard player and right now his name's escaping me yes Ray, was it, uh, was it Ray? Yeah, Ray Manzanaric, yeah. yeah. And uh, just like, because he seemed to be like the brains behind the band, you know, in my mind, uh, when I saw them. Yes, it was amazing. So when you got to sort of like that ripe old age of 16, which was like probably the the very end of the 60s, early 70s, I mean, there was a lot, a lot going on. There was Vietnam there was kind of, you know, assassinations had happened. There was also then the death of, you know, Brian Jones and then, you know, Hendrix, Joplin and Morrison, you know, bizarrely, probably the only person I've ever spoke to who's all, all three passed away. I mean, how, you know, from, you know, from that amazing period of teenageness where we're all very intense and being a bit overdramatic, then suddenly these people all passing, you know, how did, how did you sort of emotionally navigate that next, that next moment into the 70s? I feel like all of it was merged with the Vietnam War in my mind, that the horror and um, just inhumanity of it, the napalm, the Agent Orange, just the body counts on TV, that, you know, all of that was really overwhelming. And I actually remember going to, to a friend of mine's house whose dad was an art teacher. And um, we were just friends. You know, I kind of had a crush on him, but nothing ever happened to him. But I remember being at his house and um, my mom, you know, hardly ever came home for dinner, but sometimes she would. And his family was very regimented. You know, when it was a certain time, it was time for me to leave because they're going to sit down for dinner. And I remember getting on my bike outside his house, you know, probably feeling a little bit rejected and alone all of a sudden because him and I had, you know, this great connection and we'd been painting uh, the door in his room, you know, you know, our little psychedelic designs and, and just feeling kind of lost. And I remember like looking up at the sky and saying, how am I supposed to make my future with this? you know, with the world the way it is, you know, and just wondering. And by then I had been to big anti-war marches in San Francisco. Um, 
My mom was very progressive, liberal um, kind of person, and she had bailed out a bunch of college students who'd gotten arrested. And, um, you know, so she's very sympathetic to any anti-war activities. And one of the men who'd worked for her, you know, helping out in the kennels and all that, um, she helped him get away to Canada. Wow. And I inherited his dog and his stereo, nice. and uh, which was wonderful because he had this great reel-to-reel machine and lots of really cool tapes. And um, just being really confused, you know, how am I supposed to make a world, a life with this as, you know, what's gazing out in the world? Yes, absolutely. That I don't think have... I really ever figured it out. No, no. Well, I kind of I just Im- didn't stop. Yeah. Yes, I can imagine sort of having those sort of people in my life, and then all passing away at such a young age, but had been so influential. You know, it. You know, it's never happened since, has it? Really? I mean, I know Kurt Cobain died, and there's been others, but I don't know. There's an intensity of that period which must have just. Felt- oh yeah, because it just wouldn't stop. You know. It was like you just get one loss and one tragedy and, you know, after Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy and, you know, um, all of it is just, yes. you either get killed or you, um, you know, what is it? You implode because that's mm. what I see the drug abuse doing imploding inside these you know creative beings you know there was that seed of of something that made them self-destruct or you know want to get away want to escape i remember my mom encouraging me because i had very strong emotional sensitivity and stuff and her telling me sleep is a great escape and it's free and it's not illegal so I think she she would encourage me to just, you know, go to bed. Yes. You know, when yeah. you're feeling overwhelmed. Yes, we'll wake you up when it's over. Mm. It's always a bit tricky though. So then how do you sort of navigate the 70s then? Did you go to you know college or university at that stage? I didn't and actually quit high school after my sophomore year, which in you know, terms of how they talk about school now would be after 10th grade. Right. So I still, I never went to my junior or senior year. And I started taking psychedelics. Right. Probably when I was, you know, 15 for sure, maybe even 14. Go for the psychedelics. And oh, so that's an escape. And also, honestly, it kind of, uh, I think in a way it was kind of healing. because You got to have this experience of sort of feeling one with nature a lot, especially with like mescaline. Yes. I remember taking LSD and like being pretty overwhelmed by it. Like this goes on too long. And then somehow my friends and I, you know, found some connection with somebody who sold mescaline and it was a much less intense, less long experience. And then from then on, I didn't want to take acid anymore. Right. Because it was just too much. And, you know, people were getting really strong acid. I mean, you know, purple haze and orange sunshine, these brands would come out. And, yes. You know, I you think... only take a half of one because who knows if you'd ever get your mind back if you took a whole one. Yes, I think some of it was manufactured in a small cottage in, in sort of 
the depths of um, the west coast in wales in in the in the uk so um there's a famous story but that's another that's an, oh no i think that was oh no that was i think they're the ones who manufactured the stuff that went to woodstock but it was too strong so that's why he was saying don't touch the brown acid anyway oh okay there you go they got the dose slightly a bit too strong but so yes yeah, so psychedelics but i remember reading ken kesey um, you know, and really enjoying hearing about the magic bus and and all of that. And I went to a few concerts up in San Francisco at the Fillmore. Right. I got to see It's a Beautiful Day. I remember that very much. And um, I think it was with Elvin Bishop Blues Band. Um, and just loving that, that there was community there. Yes. we, we... More than the little smaller town fresno isn't really little but it's quite a bit smaller um and definitely more like provincial than san francisco land of you know wildness and freedom did you pick up on that world of the coquettes you know that performance art bunch who was sort of happening in san francisco with people well i didn't move to san francisco until the coquettes weren't that big but i knew about them but I did get vocal coaching when I was in Romeo Void from one of the Coquettes. Oh, which one? So they were all still, you know, a lot of them are still around. And then a lot of the early drag queens I knew, Doris Fish and Miss X. And and um, that was really wonderful to have them as like friends. And in the punk movement, there was a lot of people who were gay or appreciated drag shows and Yes. And that sort of thing. So um, everybody wanted to go see, you know, the latest band and and be there, you know, be part of it. Yes, absolutely. I think there was there were I've done interviews with people like Fayette and Pam Tent, and also um, a chap called Rumi as well. So um, yeah, it's uh, they're quite they're quite the lot, aren't they? Really. So um, yeah, it was quite an influential lot, and I think Sylvester was also part of the. Oh yeah, Hobbits. yeah, I got to meet him. Did you? Yes. Yeah. Um, at, he was doing a show at you know one of the local nightclubs, and somebody that I knew knew him, and I had you know been in Romeo Void for a while, but you know we were still a pretty young band, and he was like, "No, you've got to meet Sylvester," and I want him to meet you. I mean, you guys should just be meeting so I said okay and so we got to go backstage at a show and he was so gracious and just um effervescent person yeah and of course I just watched him perform so he's uh was a brilliant performer and so talented and just fountain of energy and really positivity amazing yes well i guess he yes he did have quite i think i bought the 12 inch single of did he do you make me feel i can't remember the song yeah so real right that's the one yeah they i i first heard it on a film called trading places they uh, that was when eddie murphy was sort of like in the guy's house and he'd been they'd done the swap and he has a party and and that track comes on i went oh this is good i must go and get the 12 inch single I was very, that was 1982, probably. So, um, God, such a long time ago. So then, yeah, so 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 apart from dropping out of school, but dropping acid and then various other things, then what? how do you navigate your early 70s period at this stage? Um, well, you know, after I quit high school, then um, 
I worked for my mom part-time and I became a maid up at Yosemite on the weekends. And I started riding my bike over to the college, Fresno State, and started taking poetry writing classes. Nice. And um, probably these writers aren't familiar with you, but they were to me. Um, Philip Levine, Peter Eberwine, Chuck Hanslicek. They were all teaching there, you know, free verse. I remember seeing Allen Ginsberg there. And of course, at the anti-war things, I also saw, you know, Joan Baez and um, Dick and Mimi Farina. And, you know, so there was a lot to uh, absorb of the cultural side of the, you know, what was going on in an alternative way you yeah. know, in our society and stuff. So there was um, a real sense of artists, you know, get out there and speak their minds and yeah, and do creative things. And so it was kind of neat because I didn't ever register for classes. And so the teachers are like, what do you mean you're just auditing my class? Like, I don't see any paperwork for you auditing or being enrolled. And I said, yeah, I'm just here because I got the schedule of classes and I dropped out of high school and I wanted to learn. So, you know, I guess that that was great for them. They always encouraged me to come back and I would do the work, you know. Right. Um, I'd even turn things in and they're like, well, I don't feel like I need to grade you because, you know, you're not here for credit. I'm like, okay, but just give me feedback, whatever. Right. I remember one of my teachers saying, well, what you're doing is really great because you're just being of use to yourself. Oh. And I thought, okay, I like that phrase. I'm going to be of use to myself. And that was, you know, something very memorable feedback that he gave me. Yes, that is a good bit. Of, I bet you've used that as well on some students, haven't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also the whole thing of like, don't be a consumer, be a creator. Yes. We had a, we had a headmaster say, don't be a spectator of the game of life. I thought that was Ooh, I like nice. that too. Yeah, that was good. That was very impressive. So then you you obviously went from you know the psych the powerhouse psychedelics of um, Hendrix and um, I don't know the Doors were a little bit weren't they and but Jefferson Airplane and the and the Beat Generation of Ginsburg. So how did you then navigate that sort of seventies period? Because obviously there was this. Sort well, of... I really liked David Bowie, but I wasn't really that attuned to him. But I had friends who had like all his records or his earliest records, especially, and also Roxy Music. Right. But in general, I wasn't that wild about the rock that was going on. So I would listen to like, you know, Linda Ronstadt records. Um, and of course, you know, Joni Mitchell. Did, Car and, did, um, did Carol King come into your life? Oh, yeah, King yeah. Tapestry. And also, that was the kind of record, like, everybody had that. It was the <laughs> same, like, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Right. You know. Fun. And then I had some friends that I met. Um, I kind of went to a free school for a little bit. But I really, I didn't, I ended up just college instead, you know. But um, I had a friend there who was really into Slade. Right. And I remember going over to his house and his parents had this 
because it was probably, you know, built when they were little kids. It was like almost like a little baby dollhouse out in the backyard. But he had it all set up with stereo and, and a mattress and everything. We'd go out there and listen to Slade and um, um, Deep, Deep Purple. Wow. And Black Velvet Sabbath. Underground. Did he get into Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, those sort of bands? Oh, yeah. Led Zeppelin, not Black Sabbath so much. I'm not sure why. You know, just... Yeah. Yes. I mean, sometimes it's your records and sometimes it's your friend's records. So yes. I would have to say those were more. And did and did Elton John slip into your life? You know, goodbye. A little road. bit. But I think he, he was kind of cartoony to me, you know. Right. And so I think part of me was like I could appreciate, especially like Tumbleweed Connection. I like that more than remember when Yellow Brick Road came out. I was like. Okay, well, you know, do your thing, but it wasn't ever my thing. Yes. You know, um, maybe it wasn't kind of earthy enough or something. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I did. I mean, but I love the lyrics. You know, Bernie Taupin was an amazing lyricist, and I really appreciated his lyrics. Yes. Did, did the Carpenters come into your life at all? Did the, the work of Karen Ooh. Richards, the Carpenters, did, did you ever get into that period of listening to Karen Carpenter? Not really. I mean, I think in in that time, I was probably a little snobbish about them because they were so pop, you know. Yes. I remember being snobbish when I was in sixth grade because uh, somebody bought me a monkey's record. Yeah. And I was listening to, you know, Simon and Garfunkel and Cream and, and, you know, other things. And the last thing in the world I thought I would ever want was a monkey's record. Of course, now I can appreciate the monkeys, you know. I know. We all, we all, we all went there, didn't we? We felt so sort of like. You, you lose a lot of your snobbishness as you get older and you just like enjoy music. Yes, I know. The same it's... thing happened with like Tom Petty. I remember, you know not having an interest in the world in Tom Petty when he came out because I'm sure at that time I was more interested in x-ray specs and Susie and the Banshees and yeah you know that sort of thing and um x the band x I think that was probably about the same time yes um but then now I love Tom Petty you know I would listen to a Tom Petty record over a lot of those other records now Yes, I know. I think it was, um, I Need to Know. My brother had a Tom Petty one that had the track, I Need to oh, that's Know. That's a great song. That was such yeah. an American girl. But then I loved one of his albums in the sort of 90s. I think it was called Wild Wildflowers. Wildflowers, yeah. I think that was the one which might have been produced by Rick Rubin, and that was kind of amazing, actually. I mean, yeah, it was good. Oh, I have to tell you something. Yeah. Okay, so um, I'm working on a cover band. Nice. In my retirement, um, my husband's good friend from, you know, growing up in Colorado um, has been coming down here to help us work on our house. He's a carpenter and a guitarist. And so when we moved here last year, they'd work on the house all day. And then at night we'd start learning songs. And before you knew it, I was like, OK, guys, we're going to be a cover band. I'm not going to worry about writing my own songs. I just want to sing all the songs I ever loved and want to, you know, learn. Yeah. And so at night we'd sit around the living room. Mostly he'd get out his acoustic guitar and we would learn songs. Well, now it's a year later and um, we've recorded a bunch of them. Nice. And we've learned, well, I'm not sure how many we've learned, but now we've recorded like 
28 songs. <laughs> and they're everywhere from um, Johnny Rivers yes. and Judy Collins to Pearl Jam and Nirvana. So we end at 2000. Right. And we started in the 50s. And then we pretty much were open to... Well, if you suggest it and nobody says no, then we'll learn it. So I've learned like a Jayhawks tune that my husband really liked that I never even knew. And then um, there's a 70s song, Sentimental Lady, that I heard. Um, I was at the pool. You know, I, I'm an avid swimmer. That's what I do for my exercise. And I have for, you know, most of my life. Yeah. I was at the pool and I heard Sentimental Lady and I was like, well, that's a good song, you know, and you just want to think about what, what are good songs. And I knew it had a real tricky melody and stuff. And so I wanted some challenging material. So I've learned that and uh, Love and Spoonful didn't want to have to do it. And I'm, I sort of learned the Mama Cass version. Right. Which is real kind of jazzy and really kind of leans into that waltz feel. Yeah beautiful beautiful yes you know song to learn and sing and so this is kind of my passion right now and um we're gonna try to get somebody to put it out i mean at this point it's kind of funny because well we could put out a box set (laughs) (laughs) you know but we're just working on it you know yes and we're still learning songs and we hardly ever perform because you know i'm very covid conscious so we had a front yard concert at our house and invited all our neighbors and the very few people we knew last October when, you know, we had it. It was like our open house. You know, the people who worked on the house and the people from the hardware store and a couple of people I knew from the pool. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. we're going to do that again at the end of April. Nice. And then we're actually, you know, going to try to get some gigs around Santa Fe at galleries and outdoor kind of venues. Oh, that'll be and, fantastic. Um, we've booked yes. a wedding for next September, but we're called the Raton Three. <laughs> so I wanted to bring that up because there is new material coming. And I'm going to, before we leave, let me, oops, I made you small accidentally. Yeah. I'm going to give you my email in our chat. Oh, excellent. And then if you want me to send you some of, my songs you don't have to say you want to yes, just you know I'd email me and say you oh, that'd be want fantastic. To, and i'll send you some songs yes absolutely amazing and like we're learning don't go back to rockville you know that's one of our sort of rollicking songs yes and fade into you mazzy star oh yes i remember the one yes we all love that yeah. one Yes, it's got to be done. So I, I sort of either tend toward fun things, you know, like we're learning Mr. Bojangles, and and then I really like real moody pieces. Yeah, nice. Because I like to get down in there. And we're doing, you know, some sort of country rock. We're doing a, um, Hot Burrito Number 1 from the Flying Burrito Brothers. Right. It's a I beautiful that- song. I remember hearing their and, version of um, Wild Horses, the Rolling Stones one. Right, that. right. That was a classic. Graham one. Parsons. I had, so you're talking about the 70s, Graham Parsons. Yes. I loved Graham Parsons. And when I was talking about listening to Linda Ronstadt, I would also had 
Graham Parsons, you know, music and love that. And I love that, you know, I kind of, you know, turn my back on rock a little bit, except for like Roxy Music and David Bowie, who, as far as I was concerned, did it beautifully, you know. Yes, majestic, Louis. So did, um, as, 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 as you sort of embraced your sort of, Americano in the 70s then yes. what happened what happened in 76 77 then when punk came well, along well, okay you know that was when um stop sobbing came out on a 45 with oh, the, God, pretenders, the pretenders yes, yes and xtc waiting for nigel and what about brass We're in pocket only making plans for nigel yes what about brass I remember, in and pocket? life begins at the hop i had yes. that on 45 and the normal, the normal god, that's leather red, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and x ray specs, and um, gee, what other records? What about the Buzzcocks? All the... Oh, yeah, uh, but I'll have to tell you when I saw the Buzzcocks with the Gang of Four, the Gang of Four blew the Buzzcocks off the stage, right. and I wasn't a huge fan of the Gang of Four when they came, but. Afterwards, I was, you know, just as far as the intensity of their performance and what it felt like it meant, yes. you know, in the moment. Although we are going to probably learn a Buzzcock song. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we're going to learn Ever Fallen in Love. That's, that is, yeah, that's yeah. kind of both. That's a, that's a great song. And I loved Magazine, too. Right, sure. You know, sure. Howard Devoto, ooh, he's creepy and I love it, you know. <laughs> Yes. I will drug you and fuck you on that. Yeah. <laughs> Permafrost. Yeah. That's nice. That's, yeah. Can't say that nowadays, could you? But look, then, so how does your, how do you then make that moment from being a fan, writing poetry, to being in a, in a band? Well, I went to art school. So after I went to like just college, you know, for a couple of years, then I moved up to Humboldt County. And got a job as like a medical assistant in a Native American clinic. I worked as a um, teacher's assistant in a Native American preschool. Yeah. And at the preschool, I met this guy who was subscribed to New York Rocker. He was a New Yorker. And he started asking me about, well, do you know this band Television? No. Um, do you know Richard Held? No. Do you know Patty Smith? No. And, oh, I've got to play you all this stuff. So I would, um, for a while, his car was out of commission. And so I would pick him up for work. So um, I remember after work, going to his house and listening to records. And of course, he always had every Bowie, everything. Right. So he'd play that stuff, too. And um, he later opened a record store that was open for a number of years in Hollywood that, you know, carried all the imports and had all the great records. It was called Vinyl Fetish. Nice. Anyway, he was a huge influence on me. And um, we went and saw Patti Smith after Horses came out at a you know a couple of different venues in the Bay Area, you know, the earliest time she came to San Francisco. Yes. Yeah, and that was just really fun. And then once I started going to so around that time also I was at a street fair and they yeah. had the Indochina peace campaign um booth at the fair and I, I got a um fortune cookie that said art is your fate don't debate 
And I'd always like to sit at the kitchen table and make watercolors, you know, and things like that. Mm. And so I thought, well, maybe I should apply to art school to go to college, you know. And so I did that. And then when I got to art school, the Avengers, you know, was happening in San Francisco and Penelope Houston. And oh. she had just quit going to the Art Institute the year before I went. But I walked by her locker all the time because she had written the words to her song, We Are the One. Yes. I don't know if you're familiar with the Avengers. It's kind of. I did. I did, I did an interview with Penelope. Oh, OK, great. Yeah, she's awesome. Her she, and I had a. Go ahead. I was going to say they, they supported the Sex Pistols, didn't they? Yes. Yes. And I was I, there. You were there. Yeah. <laughs> That very rainy night when everyone's leather, just, you know, the smell of leather in that auditorium was huge. Wet leather. Yes. I remember that so much. Um, but yeah, um, Penelope is incredible. And so she really inspired me. I remember after seeing the Avengers one night, I was like, I can do that. I have something to say. Yes. I didn't really feel that after seeing Patty Smith because she's so skinny, you know, and stuff. And, and like kind of exotic, you know, exotic bird. But when I saw Penelope, I was like, she's just a real girl, you know, I can dig her and um, I can sing as good as her, you know, I have something to say. So I remember that gave me more confidence to start my own band, seeing her. Yes, God, you've seen just, you've basically just ticked all the bands that the most Im important bands from nearly the last 50 years, haven't you, actually? You know, like going through what you <laughs> mentioned there, even the sex business, because mostly people don't manage to do that. Uh, the, the zeitgeist in one period, often they don't do the next kind of wave because it's like, oh, no, I don't get that. You know, that's not the music. They kind of dismiss the next kind of musical fad or or kind of moment, don't they? So um, to do to do psychedelic rock with Hendrix and and the Doors and people like and that and see then, them as a young person, yeah, and then, and then to later see, to be not too old or jaded or whatever to not embrace the whole punk scene. Well, no, that's very really impressive, actually. Blimey, there you go. So yes, you thought this is it. I'm going to be in a band. Did you? Is that how I'm going to get? Yeah, and we started rehearsing just in the flat. You know, we. Um, nailed a bunch of carpets on the wall, you know, our landlord lived downstairs. So we had to like coordinate when it was okay for us to rehearse, <laughs> but he was a pretty nice guy. And, you know, we, I guess we were pretty good tenants because he never balked at it. And, you know, there was a time we knew it was okay to rehearse and the time we knew it, we didn't, I don't remember what those were, but, you know, and we started writing our first songs and playing at a lot of warehouse parties and, our whole philosophy at that point was accept all gigs. You know, if anyone wanted us to play anywhere, the club, the warehouse party, the after party, just say yes. Just get out there and do it. Yes. And and so that's how we, you know, built up having fans and getting how we climbed from 415 Records to bring Lester Bangs to see us. My God, you saw the so Lester, Lester Bangs. Bangs yeah, he convinced Towie that he should sign us right away. Wowza. There you go. Lester. Yeah, that was pretty neat. 
But all I remember is how he coming to sound check with this guy who was really wasted. <laughs> <laughs> I remember thinking, God, this guy is awfully drunk for it. This being five o'clock. You know? <laughs> but, I keep, yeah, was, that was Lester Bangs. That was Lester Bangs. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you, your first album, it comes out quite, quite quickly, doesn't it? You bring It's a Condition is kind of out and, and available almost within the first 18 months, two years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I remember, see, um, how you approached us about doing a 45. And we thought, no, I mean, especially Frank. Oh, oh you talked to Frank, didn't you? Yes, I got a chance didn't to you talk to our bass player. Yeah, because Frank was the one who said, no, we got to hold out and tell him we want to record an album. Right. Not just a 45. And I think, wow, I was like, okay, you know, I like your instincts. You know, you're really standing up for us and, and you know, wanting to get the most out of this that we can instead of just being flattered that anyone wants to hear your music, you know? Yes. So I remember having that conversation with Howie of basically turning him down for doing a 45. Who's Howie, by the way? You know, way? and I said, well, when we have more material and you're ready, you know, we'll put out an album. Yes. And who was Howie? And, and so it wasn't Howie Klein from 415 Records. Oh, okay. Oh. So Howie, I'm sorry. Oh, yes. No, now I know who Howie is. Sorry, I didn't know who. Right. He's the man, isn't he? Yes. What is... Oh, he was on the phone with every college station. When we went on tour, we went to every college station. You know, we um, did the record giveaways where you'd call in and you know, give them some trivia thing about your band and then they'd get free tickets for the show tonight, you know, and all that kind of record promotion on college radio. He was a So hustler, we were not he? big on color. Oh, totally. I had a um, big map on the wall that said on the top and he like had push pins in where everybody's tour was going and where they had been and all that. And he had a sign that said all bands on tour at all times. So he expected a lot out of us too. He did, didn't he? Really good old Howie. Yes. So he was the one with uh, 415 Records. Oh, so, yeah. did, so with the release yeah. of that album, were you pleased with it? Because you obviously a new band. You do all the lyrics, don't you? And then yeah. does the sort of the other people bring the music to the lyrics? How did it all work, by the way? Well, mostly we'd work it out during, you know, rehearsals. You know, they would come up with a couple of different chord changes and sometimes they'd give me a cassette of it yeah. and then I'd kind of try to write to it. But more often than not, I would just show up at a rehearsal with, you know, like a notebook of sort of like a journal, you know, that I kept of poems and phrases and that sort of thing. And then I'd also have like a legal pad to write things down as I thought of them and also to help shape the song while I was listening to it. Oh, I can do this. And then we can repeat this part, you know, to make like a chorus. And yes, Amazing. I really had no musical training. Yeah, you know, I, I honestly did not know what a bridge was or really <laughs> a chorus or, you know, the. I remember them talking and it sounded like a you know foreign language to me, you know, count it out. And I'm like, what do you mean count it out? <laughs> you know, Sorry, but the, I didn't know how to count out bars, you know. The sound had this amazing drive to it, didn't it? Because you've got the great saxophone sound, which kind of 
pulls it along and it has an energy to it you must have thought this is a good band we've got a good sound here yes especially once we had benjamin for sure but before that i felt like we were really creative you know and just kind of you know it was it was the same sort of ideas we have now with our band the rich town three which was well don't you know if we just listen to each other's ideas and you know we accept most of them then it's going to all work out great. And it's going to sound like all of us. And that's when bands really sound good. It's when it sounds like all the people in the band, you know, in my ears. And that's kind of why, you know, after Romeo Void broke up, I had people wanting me to become Romeo Void and just get another band. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. That's not Romeo Void. Romeo Void is very specific people. Yeah. And doing energy. a very specific thing because then so if you... i do anything beyond that it's going to have to just be under my name or some other band name because i'm not going to you know tarnish that no i always felt pretty um strong about keeping the integrity of what we had done yeah absolutely because then yeah. you bring out the ep don't you which has the classic never say never on it yeah which is kind of can you remember how that song comes about by the way Oh, for sure. You didn't talk to Frank about this? I might have done, but, you know. Okay, okay. Well, basically, it was a song that we had been working on at sound checks, you know, because we were on the road and we were all the way on the East Coast, which meant we'd probably been on the road for at least a month or more easily um, because, you know, we went to Oklahoma, we went to Austin, we went, you know, we hit South Carolina, Georgia, you know, we went everywhere, Washington, D.C. I remember playing Washington, D.C. with the Psychedelic Furs. Wow. That was fun. Yeah. Um, But anyway, we'd been working on it at sound checks. And the town before Boston, I think, was Albany, New York. And we really kind of felt like we sort of got somewhere at that sound check. We had a real nice Probably the crew at the club was just like, oh, play as long as you want kind of vibe, you know? Yes. You know, some clubs are like, you know, you're on the clock. My sound guy's got to go to dinner, you know, da, da, da. And then other clubs are just like, oh, you're here. Great. Plug in, (laughs) you know? And so the club, I guess, in Albany was very hospitable. And we kept kind of running over it and we're really shaping it. And I was starting to get that thing where I'd put certain phrases next to each other all the time, you know? And forming it and hadn't really made a chorus, but it did have the line, you know, I might like you better if we slept together in it. It (laughs) didn't have the accompanying sax line every time, you know. So those kind of structural things hadn't really been happening in it yet. Um, But, you know, we're on our way there. And so when we found out Rick okay to work with us. We had worked on three other songs, the other songs that are on that record. And um, we recorded them with him. And then we went to do a gig after we were done recording. We were going to leave town the next day. And so we had, you know, torn down the studio. And, you know, if you're aware of recording studios, they have all these cables plugged into all these holes from the soundboard to, you know, the machinery of the rooms, you know, where the microphones all come in and everything, all of that had been torn down because we were done. And and the engineer came to see us at the spit. That was the name of the club. 
And we did Never Say Never as an encore. And he was like, why didn't you guys play this for us? And we said, well, you know, we really isn't a song yet. You know, we haven't really kind of worked it out yet. And he goes, oh, my God, you guys have to go back into the studio and record it. So uh, he had the keys to the studio because it was Ian Taylor, who's the engineer. Right. He's famous for work he did with uh, ACDC. Oh, excellent. And what's his name? The producer's got three names that worked with ACDC. Oh, God. Mm. He's a Brit guy. That's what we call you guys. I hope that's not a slur. No, no, that's absolutely fine. Okay. <laughs> I guess Ian was British and I remember that. Roy Thomas Baker. Roy Thomas Baker, right. But but it was like an ACDC band. But it wasn't Queen. Oh, anyway, he he produced the first Cars album. Um, Roy Thomas Baker. Anyway, um, his engineer was engineering for um, Rick Ocasek of the Cars. And so anyway, Rick, I mean... Ian had the keys to the studio so we after the gig that night we loaded our equipment back into the studio and came in the next day and recorded kind of what we had of never say never and then in the process of recording it you know made more structure to it okay you're going to sing this three times in a row then this is going to happen we're going to make that horn line come after you know you sing this so we were shaping it. And then we did a take that was about, oh, I don't know, 13 minutes long. Right. Of all those things, the changes we'd come up with and the form that we were creating. But it was still had plenty of just chunky time where we're playing the groove and sort of figuring out how long this solo section is going to be and that sort of thing. And then they cut the tape to seven minutes right. for the so for the record so it, it couldn't have happened without like razor blades and really good ears of the engineer right and i remember them keeping those strips up on the wall there were all these strips of all these parts we'd cut out you know and and a grease pencil someone had written where they were supposed to go in case we needed to put them back for any reason <laughs> <laughs> i remember when we finally were listening back on the mix which after you have the big one-inch tape and you cut it all, then you play it into a reel-to-reel. -reel. And once we were satisfied with what the reel-to-reel -reel sounded like, you know, at about seven minutes, then it was like, okay, now we can throw away those pieces of tape. <laughs> and um, yeah, but I remember being so fascinated by, you know, the razor and the splicing that happened to make, you know, never say never happen. Wow, that that's, that became quite a number on MTV, didn't it? And obviously has had millions of plays. I think it's had some, is it 7 million plays, that record, on Spotify? It's wow. Quite, it's something like It has a life of its own. Oh, it is? Yeah, I think that million. was one of the things I learned from Never Say Never is your music has autonomy. Once you put it out, it goes all these places you will never be, yeah. both in homes and clubs and countries, Buenos Aires. I've gotten, you know, fam notes here and there over the years from people, 
you know, I'm never even going to go to your town in Peru and you're like writing me about how much you love this song. I know it is. It is extraordinary when when I sometimes think about listening to a record and you think, God, I wonder where and when they, you know, would have recorded it and what part, you know, what was the day like and, you know, what were they doing at that time? You know, and mostly yeah a lot of people now have passed away so that's kind of even more strange really so but that that yeah. energy lives on so then when you came to do your next album benefactor what was that um was was the whole band on a bit of a roll at the moment were you still in the honeymoon phase i think we definitely had a sound you know we were definitely warmed up um we wrote some more songs um we we wrote you know, a couple of songs with a little bit of help from Rick Ocasek. Actually, I remember going over to his house one night because the band had just given me a track with the all the rhythm stuff on it and, um, you know, the chord structures and everything. And I hadn't quite found my way in, you know. Yeah. And so um, Rick was kind of going to help me with that. And it turned into one of my favorite songs, um, out on my own oh okay then yeah so you know you just never know what's going to happen yeah and 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 we did that rick wasn't available so we recorded it with just ian i remember that was a big hurdle with the record company because they're like wait a minute rick was the producer and now you're not going to have rick you know they weren't sure they were going to go for that and of course, I remember Frank wanting. Well, what about Martin Hannett? Hannett? Yes, yes. There you go. Um, or Steve of... Lillywhite. You oh. know, Frank wanted to go that direction, and they were like, "We're not springing for those guys <laughs> on you." You know, and we're like, "Well, okay. Well, we're just going to go with Ian then." So yes. it turned out, you know, pretty interesting. I enjoyed it. Well, actually, it's quite probably quite lucky because I think I have spoke to a few people who had Martin Hannett and he was quite drunk at the time. So he was just laying on the oh. floor, pointing at things going, oh, just change that. He, he'd slightly gone by then. So um, ah. he wasn't too with it by by that that period. Yeah, I forget what band he had recorded that, you know. He'd done Joy we Division. With... Oh, there we go. That's it. Okay. The Joy Division period then. So as the 80s progressed, because we'd had obviously in this country, we'd had the, you know, certain musical kind of moments, didn't we? We had that new romantic. We had a bit of a goth scene. There was the new Paisley scene. There was also indie pop that came along with the Smiths and bands like that from 83 to 87. There was definitely a period. And then it was the mainstream charts with people like Trevor Horn. So how was how was Romeo Void sort of trying to deal with, you know, your creative integrity but wanting commercial success an interesting combination yeah yeah well i i remember not worrying about i felt like well that's somebody else's job you know like i always felt like um if club owners gave you a hard time about there not being that many people at your show you know and you're in some town you don't live in or anything how are you supposed to get your audience to the show. You don't live there. You're, you're the promoter. That's what you do. You need to promote the shows. So don't get mad at the band if you only got 150 people here and you're expecting 300. Yes. You know, we, we went to the college radio station you have in this. Our records are available. We don't know, you know, what do you expect us to do? That's not our job. 
So I never felt it was our job. I remember when they, after Never Say Never, having a conversation with one of the record executives and he goes, well, don't you have any more sex lyrics? <laughs> I remember just laughing. It's like, that isn't how I work. You know, it is, you know, sorry. I, I write about what I write about it. You know, sometimes it goes that direction. Sometimes it doesn't talk dirty to me. Yeah. Sex lyrics. That was on the first record. Yes. You know, never say never. Okay. That's you know, tricky. sex lyrics. Yeah. I do do that, but it's not some fountain I just turn on. Yes, absolutely. I mean, because you had a few change of personnels as well at this stage. Was did you have the drum a new drummer when you were coming to do the third album? Yeah, um, drummers. You know, we had a, a couple of drummers at the beginning before we even recorded. It's a condition, and and the guy who's on it's a condition, John Haynes. He was known as John Stench in those days. Um. He came in at the request of the producer because he had worked with him before and really liked him and respected him as a drummer. We thought he was kind of quiet and perfect in a way that we weren't. Yeah. So I remember there being some friction about just how the record sounded kind of to our ears. And I remember, you know, a friend or two of mine telling me too, well, it's a great record, but I'm, you know, does it, really sound like you guys you know when I go to see you at the clubs and I was like well you know you just have to think of it as a different art form you know do watercolors look like oil paintings no no can the same artist do a watercolorist as an oil painting yes so it was like you know live shows are one thing and records are another and I did understand that you know for a record if someone's going to buy your record and listen to it on multiple listenings you have to have a little bit different ear about the whole thing and now i'm super conscious of it because i think romeo white at one point you know gave me enough uh, uh criticism about staying in tune and things like that that i became very aware of when i'm you know in tune and when i'm not so even when i'm recording now it's got to be intent or it's yes. like that will not fly. I'll do it again. Um, we'll find that phrase on another take. And, you know, now you don't have to cut the tape, but you can, you know, fly it in. And, uh, you know, because repeated listenings is different than just being at a live show. And I always felt really confident about live shows and also not worried about when you're in the moment and you're really feeling it and the audience is giving you all this energy about it and, you know, people are singing the lyrics sometimes, you know, say no, the song. Last thing on your mind is, did I get a little bit flat or sharp at the end of that line? Who cares? Yes. That moment's already gone. You know, we're on to the, you know, the now the beautiful now that happens in a live performance. Yes, absolutely. So when you came to do the third album, Instincts, did you feel that the band were getting, it was kind of touch and go, how that session was going to turn out? Um, I don't think I ever didn't have confidence in the music, but I didn't have confidence in the recording industry right you know um or the ears at the label and the a and r people and the promo mark 
marketing people. They, I, I much more saw them even just after Never Say Never as gatekeepers. Yes. You know, that were kind of keeping us away from our fans because they wanted us to be appealed to the people they wanted, you know, to reach, which weren't necessarily our fans, you know? And so I remember writing that lyric at the top of the building, six flights up. I watched an impotent city go up and you, you're always falling apart. And I remember thinking that it was kind of like the band, you know, we were kind of falling apart a little bit with the pressure and the being on tour so long with each other. You know, we knew each other maybe a little too well. Right. You know, when you go on tour for a real long time, you can almost in any given situation, you can almost hear what someone's going to say before they say it, you know, and you know, for me, it was like being a woman on ro- on tour with all the guys got really tiring. And that's where, you know, some of the lyric from Never Say Never comes from. <laughs> Sunsuit girls must be discreet, you know, because I knew what was in the mind of our, my band members about some of these young girls we'd see in the fast food joints when we were on tour. And I was just like, oh, you know, these guys are kind of a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> but you know I loved them you know we loved each other but you know it wasn't like yeah you know when you're partnered with people you know there's just a whole lot of mutual admiration and respect and and being partnered with Romeo Boyd there was a little bit less of that than there had been yeah. and I felt it too criticized criticism from them toward me as well wasn't you know one direction yes what was the track that you had that lyric you mentioned that you said was was a bit connected to the top of the building six flights of just too easy just how fair can i be how big is this mistake you have a cigarette and i have a headache (laughs) (laughs) nothing makes me lonelier than a phone call to you you know, it's just like, ah. <laughs> God, that's a great lyric. Now, so once that album comes Excuse out. Excuse me, I have to take a sip of water. Oh, that's fair enough. I need to cough. <laughs> yeah, let's all cough. Look, so once once that album came out and you were touring it, how was Columbia Records at this stage to the band? Um. Well, you know, they... They promoted Never Say, I mean, Girl in Trouble, you know, and they, um, we got in all kinds of debt for the, making the videos, although they only released one of them, we made two. Um, But, like, I remember going into Black Rock, which was what the big building, you know, the CBS Records, Columbia Records building in New York you know, when we finally got to the East Coast from the West Coast and we're visiting the label and going up there and covering the halls, everywhere were posters of Patty Smythe from We Are the Warrior, you know? Yes. And nothing of us. 
nothing. Even our A&R guy didn't have our poster up, you know, and just thinking, oh, we are over. You know, these guys, they don't care. And I remember somebody being so proud, you know, oh, your A&R guy loves Western art. You're a Native American. You're going to love to see it. And he had all these Remington sculptures and stuff. Remington's very like, you know, Western, like cowboys, you know, he might have a Native American theme here and there or a picture of, you know, a noble warrior on a horse or something. But, you know, to a Native American, he's not anybody I would ever be like, oh, you have a Remington? You know, I'd be like, Ooh, <laughs> I hate the West, you know, yes. in that way. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I can imagine. So I, I didn't feel like, you know, there was a kindred spirits or anything yeah but how did how did you then sort of go from that to making your so your your the the jump to being a solo artist um very ungracefully honestly it didn't really happen well oh god um yeah <laughs> just and i luckily i got to work with some really great people you know um, Pat Irwin from the Ray Beats, um, who played for many years in the live band for the B-52s and now has an album out called Sus, or a band he calls Sus, S-U-S-S, out of New York. Anyway, he's super talented guitarist, and he produced, you know, my first solo record, and Richard Soule from the Patti Smith Band agreed to come out and do this kind of ballad about a friend of mine who had committed suicide. Um he agreed to come out and play piano, you know, live piano, um, for, you know, to record that song and then put keyboards on other uh, songs as well. Was that and some of the lyrics Jody? on that record are good, you know. Are they what they were with Romeo Boyd? Well, no, nothing ever stays the same, you know, but I think there were some really good lyrics and stuff, good messages, and but it just didn't... I think with uh, Columbia, it was more like, well, yeah, we're signing you. But the idea behind the signing was more like they didn't want anyone else to get me just in case I managed to repeat the Romeo Void success. But they weren't going to necessarily do anything to make it happen. Right. Yes. A tricky so little number. That was awkward. It, yes. Did you, as a band, was everybody kind of in agreement to say that was all over, that that's, you know, it, it was kind of more like a whimper, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, scream against the light or whatever. Um, I, I remember knowing the band was over when we were in Florida and Peter Woods told us when we were walking along the beach that he'd applied for law school. Right. And so then, oh, okay, so this really is you know, your last tour with us, you know, this is the last you know, commitment you'll be making to us. And by then he was in love with a Japanese woman from Japan. And it wasn't long after law school and all that, that he did move to Japan. So, you know, the writing was kind of on the wall. Um, Frank and I, you know, we're so like joined when we started had drifted very far apart. Right. And, you know, as close as we'd been, we were as estranged as we ever were. And I think, you know, uh, you know, I'm 
I played a hand in that in some ways, and so did he, and circumstances, and, you know, think how things play out with your marketing, you know, because a lot of times, you know, for instance, you already talked to Frank, which is awesome, you know. I accept and that. From I what I understand, they told me you had a great talk with him and that Frank really enjoyed it. So I think, oh, that's great. Because one of the complaints that they had was that, how come Deborah gets all the attention and all the interviews? Right. Good question. And, you know, Frank was like pretty practical. And he said, well, because most writers are writers and Deborah's a writer, you know? And so they're like, so they're not musicians. They don't know how to talk about music like we can, you know? And so I think he understood that, but it's still, you know, I'm, I guess, you know, we just were all kind of annoyed, you know? Yeah. And I think honestly, you know, for the last tour, we were playing a lot of the same places we had already played maybe once or twice before. Mm. So while other bands were making it to the stages, like for instance, Talking Heads, which were, you know, admittedly a few years ahead of us, they were playing like venues we would love to play, like the Greek Theater. Yeah. Out here in California, there's two of them, one in LA and one in San Francisco, one in Berkeley, actually. We were never got to that level, you know. Yes. So And did you ever go or the abroad? The B52s. Did you ever go Pardon? play a, did you ever play abroad by any chance? Yeah, we did. We did. We came and played Europe once. We got to play at the Mask in London. So I remember. Isn't that oh it's not the mask. Marquee. In Mar LA it was the mask. Right. Sorry. Yes. Um but yeah the marquee. We played the marquee. Nice. I remember nice. that was like wow this is you know write this in your journal, you know, we played where the Beatles started. <laughs> this is weird. And then yes. we played you know a lot of we've got to play Brindisi, you know, down in Italy at this like resort town and this really cool bar, kind of nightclub place and Played a ton of shows in Germany. There's so many um, Romeo Void fans in Germany, partly because there's so many, you know, English-speaking people there because yes. of our involvement, you know, U.S. military. But you know, <laughs> we played in France. Yeah. Played some, you know, everything's different over there. Like in uh, Norway, we played in a club that was like down in a mall. Right. But their malls were all in different levels, like below ground and stuff. And so there's this huge nightclub, like, you know, it looks like you're in a mall and then you go down the elevator a couple levels and then you're at this nightclub, you know. But that's because of the winters and everything. They, didn't, oh. they don't want to make you have to go outside to go anywhere oh, once you get downtown. It's a bit like Canada, isn't it, actually? Isn't yeah, it? yeah, maybe so. In Canada, we played like a place that was upstairs from the strip joint. Yes, that's classy. And I remember classy. after soundcheck, the guys all going down to the strip joint. You know? I bet you Yay. went. Yeah. We're playing in a strip joint. How cool. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you must have loved those moments. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> but when well, after you, you know, Strange Language came out on Columbia, what happens to you, you know, to you as a singer performer from then because there's kind of a massive gap here isn't there yeah yeah there is um well I had little bands you know with different people and I had one called Lower East Venus and Abandoned Demand um 
Those are just two names that come. The new cynics, you know, so I kind of tried, but I couldn't even really get off the ground locally. Yes. And um, then I put out a couple of solo records in, after the year 2000. This is it. Um, Stay Strong. Stay Strong. Um, dialogue. Knife in Water. Is this with Peter Dunn, by the way? Yes. Yeah. And he had been in Pearl Harbor and the Explosions. Right. Right. And so John Haynes, who played on It's a Condition, was in Pearl Harbor and the Explosions. Blimey, it all comes together, doesn't it, really? But yeah. obviously, you get your day job sorted, don't you? You become a teacher. Yeah. Um, I remember one of the first jobs I had after, you know, I had to start supporting myself as I worked at... Uh, uh, taking reservations over the phone for a traffic school. You know, I mean, I just took whatever job I could get to have a job. Yes. You know, and then I worked true. for my friends who had a maternity clothes manufacturing company. I worked for them for probably about seven years, answering the phone and writing down orders from all these maternity stores around the United States. <laughs> oh, you must have loved I remember those. one of them was called daddy did it it was down in texas and we were just like oh my god the maternity store names are crazy daddy yes. did it okay irvine mm. texas i still remember yeah. and then yeah. there was a chain of them called baby love you know well i'll see so when you became a teacher did you was this school or all sort of older you know like teenagers at this stage well originally i taught um adults in a recovery program i got in recovery you know from drugs and alcohol use in 1996 and um on my way to being sober i had taken printmaking classes at the san francisco art institute on weekends they had like a weekend program you could take yeah. you know if you weren't going to, going to school full-time for a degree and i loved printmaking and that was one of my bids to get sober was you can't do etching at 9 a.m. on a Saturday if you have a hangover. Yes. You know. So did you <laughs> so did you have alcohol was it alcohol or drug or drugs or and drugs? All of the above. Yeah, just kind of a combination, really. I think um you know, it sort of started really on the road, you know, being on the road and and course you know i was no angel you know all these you know teenage years and that sort of thing and i don't know i don't know exactly how to say i i guess i just didn't have a lot of faith you know in myself or yes. the situation and you know Oblivion seemed okay. Yes, it's it's often. I don't know. It's it's hard to know. I know that it, sometimes it seemed like it was a lot of fun, and then other times I knew it was like really self-destructive and anti-me. You know, I remember when I got sober, I was like, "Oh, what a relief it is that this is me all the time. Like I don't have to think about the next day. What did I say?" You know. Right. Because I'm here, I know what I'm saying. And if I'm an opinionated and being a little bit of, you know, whatever, at least I know I'm doing it honestly and I'm not just high, 
you know. Yes. Um, so was was that um, unconsciously? Did you was that why to stay strong? Is your was that ninety? Did you say you were came out of rehab ninety eight time? Actually, I never went into rehab. I just I went through the Native American Health Center originally. Right. Talking circles, and then. Um, you know, then when I finally was like, okay, that's it is when I had to have a surgery because I had a mass on my ovary right. and they tested me and found out I had hepatitis C. Wow. Gee, that's, yeah. And my desire to be intoxicated left with the disease that couldn't kill me. Yes. Not just ODing overnight, you know, from like doing too much, but like really some like acute thing I'm going to suffer from yeah. or could potentially. Luckily, I caught it early enough that through quitting smoking and drinking and everything, you know, I wasn't smoking like cigarettes, but just, you know, all the various uh, imbibing yes. with that uh, immediately upon finding out I had hepatitis C and I started swimming regularly and all that, that within two years, they couldn't find a trace of the hepatitis C anymore. And that only happens with about 20% of people who get hepatitis C as they manage to clear it. Yes. So uh, even five years after um, I was diagnosed with it, then they tested again, you know, because they made me go to a specialist and get another test. You know, they still, there was no trace because I really had cleared it. So thank God. Wow. That is amazing. Because I had to tell some of my friends, you know, through me, you might have gotten this. And two of them, well, now I'm thinking there's three of them, actually. Two of them had, have had over the years some really bad symptoms that they've had to deal with. Yeah. And one of them ended up dying from complications of hepatitis C. Now, they could have given it to me. I could have given it to them, whatever. We were doing the same risky behaviors you know now mm. i'm into healthy risks you know <laughs> speak your mind that's a healthy risk yes you know? and I, I know the difference i know we and all, i like being who i really am i felt like i got to be a kid again in a way you know yes absolutely. once i i quit drugs and alcohol nice yes well it's good it's you know and also as i often think you know it's there's enough there's enough things that are difficult and then if you add a few more complications it's it, you're really sort of limiting your chances of any form of not just success but just form of happiness or I don't know right something right. that just feels a little bit more sustainable you know you, you kind of yeah I sort of find the aging process quite interesting really you know it's it's you you've, you know every day is, is not a miracle but it is slightly a miracle and you've got to just give yourself the best chance to get through it and um yes keep on going without any you don't want to trip up and mess your leg up you don't want to sort of you know you don't want to say the wrong thing to the you know a person that's going to really make life complicated for the next week or month you know it's just yeah it, you just want to make the best decisions don't you and you've got to be sober basically so yeah yeah, yeah it's a complicated world but look with the band then which obviously finished in sort of 86 time then you've got this new live album that's coming out how did that sort of all materialize 
Well, luckily, the guy who was the sound man at Mabuhe has a million tapes of a bunch, million is overstating, but he has tapes of many, many, many bands who played that club. Many, many bands came through that club. And he, you know, I think it was the sometime in the 90s, mm-hmm. he sent me some cassettes and said, I've got this, these Romeo Boyd shows. And boy, that was the last thing I wanted to listen to in the 90s. I don't care. That was then. This is now. You yes. know, I could. I just didn't care at all. I, you know, I just. I don't even know if I listened to him when he sent him. I'm sure I tried to be gracious. Oh, thank you. You know, I appreciate this, but I don't. I really didn't care. And then, yes. you know, um, I think again, sometime in the early 2000s, you know, he sort of, you know, found me at that time. I was on Facebook. I haven't been for a few years now, but. Um, I was for a while and he, you know, I was like, you know, I, I have these, you know, tapes. And I was like, I know you sent me some, you know, <laughs> 10 years ago. And uh, again, I was just like, well, you know, whatever, you know. Yes. Um, so it was him being a fan and then him finding the record label interested in it. And then on Listen Now, I can see why it's interesting and of interest, you know, because it's really been long enough now that it's not kind of a thorn in my side. You can imagine that, um, you know, in my hometown of San Francisco, um, you know, it was kind of like I had this colorful past, but what was I, what have you done for me lately kind of thing, Mm. you know, and I tried all these other bands that, you know, didn't really happen in any big way and all that. So it just seemed like it was something I'm proud that I did, but it's so far away from my present. Yes. But now I can listen to it with a whole different appreciation. I think also hearing how Benjamin was starting to find his way in our music because some of the songs we are, we have on that live record are ones he wasn't in on us writing with him. So you're, you know, you're listening to him finding his way and, and responding, you know, um, to us with his beautiful, you know, sort of lyric quality, you know, sax lines and belief in improvisation and spontaneity yeah. and all that. Yeah. And, you know, now it's it's cool, and I'm absolutely thrilled that anyone cares and wants to listen to this, you know, genesis, you know, of what was to really become the Romeo Void that everyone, you know, knows Never Say Never for, because Never Say Never wasn't even close to being written when this album came out. Yeah, amazing. And it's coming out. Or not the album came out, but when that show happened. Yes, it was still. But, you know, Talk Dirty was kind of a hit in Los Angeles and Boston. Um, Because K-Rock really played Talk Dirty a lot. You know, you've heard Rodney Bingham. Yes, yes. Rodney. Anyway, Bing something. Um, He, you know, loved it. We were on K-Rock, you know, a bunch of times. We, you know, went and did you know, interviews and stuff with them. They were huge supporters and also in Boston and a little bit, you know, there was a station out on Long Island, you know, that was a New York station that played Romeo Boyd. Um, so Do they you, were always fans. 
Do you sort of feel like with with the passing of time and people's kind of interest and curiosity, plus streaming services, which does make things quite easy, do you think that the, yes, the, the kind of interest in the band is kind of growing more now than it ever has? Yes, for sure. And there's access, like there's a website called Wolfgang's Vault, where you can watch the concert where we opened at California Hall for you too. Oh, wow. That was a big show for us. You know, it was a big venue at the time. I think it held like 1,200 people or something. That was a big venue. And opening for you, too, was a big deal. It was when they were on their boy tour. And we'd open for them on the first leg of their tour through the United States. And then they came back in a bigger venue. And so we got to open for them again. Wow. And that was a Howie thing. Howie you know, had the connection with U2 and U2 liked us. So they requested us again. We ended up playing with them in Los Angeles, also at the Palladium. And then later when they came through San Francisco after, um, what record was it? I will be with you again. Oh, was that um, October? Was that war? war? Oh, I don't know. It was, it was later, not earlier. Um, but it was before the Joshua. It was war. My husband saying, "Okay, what do I know?" He's the <laughs> he's the guy who remembers everything. I seem to remember the New cover. Year's Day. New Year's Day, and yeah, because um, yeah. I remember I I walked into. So here we are, opening for you two again, which feels pretty special. And we always knew. Well, they were really nice people. You know, they were. Um, you know, some of the bands we played with, they weren't very nice. You know, they're snobby or whatever. Yes. Um, just didn't have much you know to say but you two was always super gracious and 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 all that and um so i go into you know we're going to play this big huge hall like we're talking twelve thousand people or something you know big venue yes and i go walking into the hall at soundcheck and i barely got into the building because they're looking at me like what do you mean you're the lead singer and i'm like i am the band romeo Lloyd. i am the lead singer from romeo Lloyd. you've got to let me in <laughs> <laughs> Someone's going to be really mad if you don't let me in for sound check. Yes. You know? And I finally talk my way into the building. And they're like, okay, go through here. And so I step into the hall. It's huge. And Bono sees me come in because it's sound check. There's nobody there except the sound people, lighting people, and band on stage. And the rest of Romeo Avoids all backstage at this point. And he starts singing that to me as I walk in. Oh, wow. I will be with you again. It was just like, oh, this is awesome, you know. <laughs> so it's kind of one of those really memorable moments in life. My God, you just literally have ticked virtually every artist, haven't you? My God, that's amazing. I know. That is quite. <laughs> and they of... had sent me a, they had sent me a Christmas postcard when they put out October. Right. And so I still have that somewhere in a box, you know, labeled memoirs. <laughs> memoirs, I, I know. To, well, well, yes. Do I hope to up? pull it out one day. And just, yeah, I wonder what they remember. Yeah. Blimey, dear old you too. Yes, well, that's fantastic. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your, like, 16-year-old self starting out that probably looked, feels like a very different person, is there anything in particular you might have just wanted to tell them as they stepped out into that world? Wow. Um, be yourself. Just be yourself. And don't take everything so personally. 
<laughs> yeah. You know? Tricky. I know. Well, you know. And believe that there is good in almost everybody. In almost everybody. Have you? Have, but we, once bitten, twice shy, right? Yes. But um, yeah. but are you kind of cool with the with the band now? You know, with with passing the time. I would say so. I mean, I've always had a lot of affection for them. Um, even you know, I mean, you you have to step away from. It's uh, similar to any friendship. You remember the good times, you know, as time goes by. It's not the annoying things that got on your nerves that you remember it's wow remember that night when we played seattle and it was snowing and yes. you know i mean how these memorable moments you had together on stage that unification and that um how we were all elevated by the whole experience for this you know the whole length of our concert you know and when you have these um kind of experiences together that that's why you keep going on tour you know yes. it's not for the sightseeing <laughs> you know it's for those times that you're with the audience and the sound in the room is just right and yes you're all connected and 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 sharing you know in the moment what you've created together with all these people who want to hear it so having a record come out that was recorded 43 years ago is kind of like that <laughs> because these people and people who are interested in this record that's coming out on record store day the vinyl and all that there are people who those were memorable to them yes of what you did you know it spoke to them and you have to honor that that's the way i can be in touch with the audience now i guess yeah well that's yeah. yeah well look thank you ever so much and also yes i'll email you as well and then do do send me your um yes that's uh, uh your music uh, you know what i'll do is i'll send you a little set list because i took a picture of it before we were you know compiling our set list for our show at the end of april Excellent. and then tell me what songs you want to hear most likely i'll have a recording of it Oh, good. I will. I'll be yeah, and I'll send fun. you a couple of them. Why not? You know, yes. Well, I, I want to kind of get the word out because I don't want to have to pay for putting it out because there's going to be licensing involved. Oh, yes, it's true. Yeah. yeah. And I, I did a license. Uh, I paid for a license for watching the detectives for a yes. uh, benefit record that came out. Um, but everyone on the benefit record did the same thing I did which is you can apply for the license for a very short amount of time because you're confident the record's going to come out and sell records during that time. And then it probably won't sell. Yeah. And benefit records, especially, and this was uh, for a um, program for music in the schools for kids. Yeah. It's going to have a shelf life and then no one will hear it again. And everyone did Elvis Costello covers. Excellent. So I did washing the detectives, but you know it was kind of a lot of money for I think you know 120 days. Yes, this is true. But if I if you put out a covers record, you really need to buy the in perpetuity. You know, right? I mean, yes. you can't get away with saying, "Oh, I only want 120 days on this." <laughs> you know, unless it was like maybe a limited release for 
record store day and you know it's going to come and go mm. but i mean i would hope that you know down the road you know if we put out a covers record which you know the songs i chose they're all really good songs they're all the songs we chose honestly yes. um <laughs> hopefully you know it'll have a shelf life longer than 120 days but i want somebody else to pay those fees because i don't want it to cost me money no no absolutely but anyway I'm look tired. Yes, I know. We all want an easy life. But look, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. I'm so pleased we got it. And um, yes, I'll just email you so you've got my email address. And also, yes, I really hope you enjoy your your home and house and um, place place in New Mexico. Sounds so gorgeous. Sounds lovely. So are you ever on Instagram? Yes. Okay, so that's my only real oh. social you know, media. Um, I'm D period IL. Oh, my God. This is and for a while, when I was a, a teacher, our principal really wanted us to be very active posting about what was going on in our classes. And that's why I kept that active even after I got off Facebook. Yeah. But anybody who wanted to reach me can find me at D.IL. And now that I'm not teaching it, you know, not really posting about my classes anymore. No. Of course, that could change. I'll probably start teaching again, you know, when I get around to it. Yes. Right now, it's too much fun doing other things. I can imagine it's a nice break. So what's your what's your Instagram? It's Did you say D? D period I-Y-A-L-L. And it's oh, yes. no capitals. Okay. That's cool. So you can see there's it goes back quite a few years at this point. Yes. Right. But you can see our house and our dogs. <laughs> My husband working on, you know, things. Nice. I'm, I'm, and our carpenter. Yes, you got to have a good carpenter. And a little promo about this record coming out on Record Store Day. Yes. Well, this is exciting. This is very exciting. Well, look, if I don't find it, I'll have to just, I'll, I'll email you and you can always go, oh, yeah, it's that. And I'll go, oh, yeah, I miss it. Miss put it down anyway. Anyway, look, I'll I've enjoyed go. talking to you too. Yes, thank you ever so much. And I will send you the link as well. But um, this has been amazing. Thank you and take care and have a oh, lovely and day. I'm I'm halfway through your um Bertai, Adele Bertai interview. Yeah. Really enjoying it. Really enjoying it. Oh, so thank she, you. She I did one with So Anne. now that I know of you, I'm gonna have to listen to more of your interviews. <laughs> I did one with Pat actually as well. Oh, Pat Irwin, you have? Yes. Oh, I've got to find that. Okay, good. Because <laughs> I we're, we're still in touch. I, he keeps in touch with me on Instagram. Yes. And um, he married one of my very good friends when he was out. You know, they became a couple when he was out recording us for my solo record. Excellent. Yeah. And his guitaring is so good on my solo record, Strange Language. Yeah, he's amazing. It really is. Yeah, I've done another one with Adele a few years ago, which is slightly different. But anyway, she's amazing. So um, I think yeah. the book's phenomenal. But um, there you go. But look, I'll let you groove. But thank you ever so much. Yeah, this absolutely. Has been amazing. Take care. Cheers. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. You probably guessed that. A massive thank you to Deborah Leal for giving me the time for that. Just to say and confirm, um, really, about her the Romeo Void years, and also this new live album that's going to be coming out on or at the end of April 2023, connected to Record Store Day, which is going to be live from 
Mabue Gardens. 11 tracks available as a special Galaxy Blue coloured vinyl edition, as well as CD, digital and all that other kind of malarkey. Anyway, this is the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive. Otherwise, don't bother. Also, these have all been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.